If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Malachi, known by those of Italian descent as Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament. If you don't know where that is, find the beginning of the New Testament and go back one book. Today we're going to do the second part of a series on financial stewardship. As you remember, Jim Rickard was here with the uh, class he taught on stewardship and finances, and people just thought, this is, this is great, we need more of this. And the elders said, I, we, we, we can't remember when there was actually a series done on this. And since we finished up 1 Timothy 4, I thought this would be a good, good place to uh, just stop, take a break from 1 Timothy, and uh, do a series. There are over 2,300 verses in the Bible that address stewardship and finances. That is a lot. That tells us that a large portion of God's word is addressed to this, which tells us it's a very important subject to God. Now, this morning, we, we come to a text, and, and I'm trying to f- figure out how we're going to approach this. And this week, I think, okay, now what am I going to do? There's so many passages um, to go to. There are some things that we just can't address um, today. And so you'll have to bear with me because I'm going to leave you hanging. Um, and I'll leave you hanging next time and the time after that. Um, and so we can get the big picture. But I'm trying to look at key passages that are often used to teach on giving, help you understand them, and then hopefully towards the end, um, you'll be able to understand your responsibility as a believer and uh, what God wants you to do. Now, we've already looked at Deuteronomy 8, where we learned that um, God is this God who gives us all that we have. He gives us the power to make wealth. And it's okay that we have wealth. It's okay that we even have an abundance of wealth. It's okay that we enjoy an abundance of wealth. The important thing, remember, is that we give God thanks for whatever we have. Whether we have a lot or whether we have a little, we need to give thanks to God. Well, this morning we come to the book of Malachi. Now, the book of Malachi speaks of a time period, speaks to a people in a time period right after the Babylonian captivity. And the fancy word that puts you asleep on that is called post-exilic. This is the post-exilic period. That means after the exile. Now, if you look at the history of Israel, this is what you discover. Israel went into captivity twice. The first time... When at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph was in Egypt and the 70 some odd people from Jacob, his sons and daughters and servants, came to Egypt and there they remained for about 400 years and grew to over a million and a half. Then they finally got back to the the, the promised land after the 40-year wandering in the wilderness. Joshua talks about them conquering the land, dividing up the land. They got in the land. Judges was a time of major apostasy. There was a righteous remnant. That's what Ruth's about. And then we get into the time of the kings, starting in... 1 Samuel, where Saul's the first king, and then 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles talk about the lives of David, and then 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings talks about all the kings and all the things they did. Well, they got, the kings got worse and worse. As a matter of fact, when the, the kingdom split after Solomon, the northern ten tribes, and the southern tribe of Judah, the northern ten tribes didn't have one good king. And they, in 722, were taken off by the Assyrians and 
plowed under in Jeremiah's terminology. Then Judah was left. And Judah remained longer because David was a man after God's own heart. And so God actually spared the kingdom of Judah longer because of David. And because Judah had about one out of every five kings were decent. But eventually they were taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon in three deportations starting in about 586 B.C. And I think 598 and then 605. And that is where Daniel was and his buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That is where Ezekiel prophesied from, Babylon. But Jeremiah, who also lived right about the time of the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, he prophesied that it would only last 70 years. And then they would return. In Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah prophesies of King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus was... Um, not even born when Isaiah wrote. And Isaiah wrote that God would raise up this servant whose name was Cyrus and he would allow Israel to return. Well, Israel hadn't even left yet. Cyrus wouldn't be born for 150 years. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that when that prophecy was read to Cyrus, who was the Medo-Persian king who conquered Babylon that he was so amazed that the God of Israel called him by name 150 years before he was born that he did everything the prophecy said. He funded Israel to go back to their land, let the Jews leave, and gave them money to rebuild their city and rebuild the temple and restore Judaism. But if you remember at that time... For instance, in the book of Nehemiah, there were some ruffians that gave them problems. You remember who they were, Sanballat and his bunch of scruffies? And they kept hassling Nehemiah, and they kept trying to threaten him and scare him and intimidate him. And they were sending letters to, to the Medo-Persian king saying, you know, hey, hey, they're going to rebel, they're, they're trying to rebel. And then their, a letter would come back and say, stop building. And they say, oh, no. So then they write a back a letter saying, we aren't trying to rebel. These guys are causing... And then they would send another. And there was this big letter time that was going on where they would start, stop, start, stop. And they're trying, you know, get the temple rebuilt and the walls done. And so that discouraged them. But in addition to that, there were some older people who returned from the Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem who were young when the captivity first take took place. They were over 70 years old. Maybe they were 10 years old. And they remember seeing Jerusalem, seeing in its beauty, seeing Solomon's temple and the city in its glory. And then they're taken captive. In 70 years, they come back. They're 80 years old, very well respected. And the city doesn't look good anymore. It's knocked down. It is rubble. For 70 years, the dirt has filled up all the holes and the temple is charred and the buildings are all burnt. And they're bummed out. And they just, they're just, they become the ultimate naysayers. Oh, we'll never, ever get Jerusalem rebuilt. I mean, whew, look at that temple. It's just a pile of rubble. And, and they really discourage the people. In addition to this, and this just is compounding all these things, the people also were, were getting impatient 
And they, because they said build, don't build, build, don't build, they decided to take the money that Cyrus had decreed would be used on the temple and they used it to build their own houses instead of the house of the Lord. Now you can imagine how God felt about that. He cursed them. And they were just floundering in the land. They're floundering there. They, they aren't thriving. It's supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey, but it's the land of cursing and bitterness and floundering. They just can't get any momentum financially going or any spiritual momentum. No momentum. They're just grinding along. And so God sends three prophets to deal with them. The first is Haggai. And he comes along and he is God's hammer. He just comes up and just blasts him. He blasts him. If you ever read that book, it's a scary book. He says, you need to repent. You've done this. You've done that. And he just hammers away. Then he sends Zechariah and Zechariah comes on the scene and he's Mr. Encouragement. The Messiah is coming. Come on, guys. Do what's right. The Messiah is coming. And every chapter, all of 14 chapters, Zechariah, picture Christ in one form or another, in the angel of the Lord, the olive trees or something, all the way through the suffering servant, whatever, all the way through the book, Zechariah tries to encourage the people. So God uses Haggai as kind of the bad cop and Zechariah as the good cop to get, get them going, whatever it takes. And guess what? It worked. With the help of Nehemiah, with the help of Zerubbabel, with the help of Joshua the high priest, and with the help of Ezra the scribe, God uses these two prophets to motivate the people to the place where they do rebuild the walls and they do rebuild the temple. And everything begins to be good. But then the people fall back into sin again. I mean, after all, they're scraping by and they just don't, think it's worth it, you know, being all that devoted to God. I mean, look at where it's got them. Now, what's interesting about Malachi is that Malachi only has 55 verses in it, but 47 of the verses in Malachi are words uttered directly by God. That is, they are put in the mouth of God himself as, God, as if God was speaking more than any other book in the Bible. And when God begins to confront these people, this is about 425 B.C. Malachi's uh, ministry um, started when Nehemiah's was just trailing off. When, when Malachi, or God through Malachi, begins to confront the people, the people begin to feign ignorance. And, and this is what I mean by feigned ignorance. You know, you, your, your wife says, Honey, did you forget to take the trash out to the street again? And you say, What? Me? I didn't know I was supposed to take the trash out. When you know good and well that you're supposed to take the trash out. Every single Thursday we take the trash out. The trash man comes Friday morning, early. You have to do it. It was that way last month and last year and the year before that. What do you mean you don't know? 
That's what I mean by feigned ignorance. That is when you pretend like you don't know the truth, but really you do. And this book is loaded with feigned ignorance. It's actually one of the main um, devices in the whole book. If you look at Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, this, the book just begins with them feigning ignorance. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how? How have you loved us? God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. He's saying, hello. Look at all the nations there are in the world. How many of them are in my chosen people? He says, hey, look, there was two out of the twins, Esau and Jacob. And guess which one I chose to set my love on? It was Jacob. What do you mean? How have you loved us? You're my chosen people. Look at Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. It says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? What? (laughs) They were offering, you know, one-eyed lambs. (laughs) Lame, old, crippled beat up, broken up, you know, scruffy looking creatures. And God, when you read the book, it's kind of funny. He says, oh, why don't you give one of those ratty looking animals to your governor? You'd be scared to give it to your governor. And yet you give it to me? And he really comes down on him. You're reading the book. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take refuse. I'm going to take vomit and I'm going to shove it in your faces for doing that. God doesn't like it. Look at Malachi 2.14. When God refuses their lame, pathetic offerings and sacrifices, they feign ignorance again in 2.14. Yet you say, for what reason? What? Come on, it's still got three legs. I mean, it's not a male, it's a female, but it's, it's breathing. What? Look at 2.17. God, in response to their flippant, ungodly divorce practices, says, You have wearied me with your words. And you, you are just wearying me. Yet you say, How have we wearied you? What? What do we do? They knew good and well. They weren't supposed to be putting their wives aside because they burnt the toast. But that's exactly what they were doing. What? What, 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 what? Look at Malachi 3.7. God has just finished exposing that their sorcery and their adultery and their fraud and their oppression of the widows. And He promises to judge them if they do not repent and return to Him. And you know what they say? How shall we return <laughs> so God tells them. And that's what our passage is all about. 
They're trying to justify their sinful behavior. They know the law has not changed. It's been around for hundreds of years. The sacrificial system has not been altered. The word of God has not changed one jot or one tittle. They know what's right and they aren't doing it and they're feigning ignorance. And so they say, how how do we return? I mean, we're doing everything right. So if you have your Bibles, look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And uh, we're going to extract a couple principles out of this. Just one for this morning, another one next week. But follow along as I read, starting in verse 8. God says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? Feigned ignorance number seven. In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with the curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So from this text, we're going to learn two important truths, and you need to Leave with one of them etched on your heart, and that is this. You need to learn what you do that robs yourself of God's blessing. Next week, we'll learn what you need to do in order to gain for yourself a blessing. But notice what verse 8 says. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? Now, just think about that. That is a strange statement. Will a man rob God? You're thinking to yourself, well, God is spirit. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. How could a person rob God? That is strange. I mean, he doesn't even have any furniture. I mean, what, what, what do you rob from him? The word rob used here is used in other Jewish literature to describe taking something by force or by deception or fraud. It's actually a similar word to the word Jacob, the word deceiver. Who would ever think that you could actually steal from God because God is all-knowing, He's all-powerful, He sees everything. I mean, the concept is ridiculous, yet it can be done. And notice, God says, you are robbing me, robbing, a participle, which means they were continually robbing him. It wasn't just a one-time thing. He says that in verse 9, you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. He says it again, robbing. It was a continual practice. They were continually stealing from God. Now, you know, it's one thing to steal. It's another thing to steal and have somebody catch you. But to steal and have God catch you is not good. And guess what? He always does. He catches you before you begin. Because he knows it before you even do it. 
Now, you may be thinking to yourself, how could a person rob God? Well, guess what? That is just what Israel asked. Look at verse 8. How have we robbed you? And so God tells them in tithes and offerings. Now, as soon as you let that word tithe come out of your mouth as a preacher, people begin to slink down. (laughs) They're thinking, oh no, another one. I want you to know, this text is one of the famous texts that preachers like to use in order to put people in a vice and just squeeze 10% out of them. I mean, this is the ultimate beat them tenthless passage. (laughs) This is the passage that you go to when the budget's down to really scare people. And lay major guilt guilt trip on them, cursed with a curse. All I gotta do is, you know, put a hundred dollars in the plate, and tomorrow it'll be a thousand dollars in your pocket. Hear it on TV all the time. I just want you to know we don't have to tithe. And I want to address this whole issue of tithing. There's confusion about the issue of tithing because tithing has come to be used as a general term to describe taking the offering. You know, somebody gets up front and they say, well, now we're going to take the tithes and offerings. It comes exactly from this text. And because so many people have taught that Christians have to tithe, it's just become a synonym for giving. Now, This is the bummer. We don't have time today to show you what is the responsibility of New Testament believers. I don't even think we're going to get there next week or maybe even the next time. But we will get there. Somebody came up in the foyer and said, so what what do we just don't give for four weeks? No. You you do what Zacchaeus did. You give 50%. But I want to clear away some of the confusion about tithes so that you can understand what the Bible teaches when we get to the other part, the New Testament part. And the first thing we want to do is we want to look at four key truths that will help you understand the context of this passage. Preachers love to preach this passage out of context, divorced of its context. You just go there and you just pretend that this passage is a mandate from God to the church. See, there is a great difference between what is described in the Old Testament and what is prescribed There is a difference between what is given to a specific group and what is given to every group. And so let's just look at four principles. First, you need to know the church is not Israel. The church is not Israel. The church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the bringing together, according to Ephesians chapter 2, about verse 11 and following, the bringing together of both Jew and and Gentile into one new man. We are all baptized, 1 Corinthians 12 says, by one spirit into the one body of Christ, which is the church. 
The church did not begin until Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. It did not exist in the Old Testament. And when the church was born, it did not become Israel, nor did it replace Israel. Now, I state that because contrary to what some would teach, they would teach that Israel has been usurped or replaced by the church. In other words, all the curses that God promised to Israel happened literally to Israel, and so they get the curses. But then we, because we're sinners and rebellious and uh, unworthy, we get all the blessings. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. No, there is still a future for the people of Israel. And the promises to Israel are still in effect. Now, having said that, I would say this. If you are Jewish, just like almost all the people in the New Testament who made up the church, like all the apostles and all those people at Pentecost, you are a Jew and you do get to receive the promises given to Abraham. And if you are a Gentile, because you placed your faith in Christ and are in Christ, Galatians chapter 3 says, you also get to receive the promises given to Abraham. But just because the church gets to receive those promises and those blessings promised to the nation Israel, that does not make us the nation Israel. Nor does it nullify the promises to the nation Israel. Because there's two different kinds of promises when you look in the Bible, and these are them. One kind of promise is a unilateral covenant. That means one person makes the covenant. For instance, um, God um, says to Abraham, I will bless you, I will make you great, I will you know, bless your seed, and, and I'll give you the land. Period. There's no stipulations. There's no, if you do this, I do this. God just says it. The same thing with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. The same thing with the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. God just says, I'm going to do it. He's the only binding party, so it comes to pass because God always keeps his word. Then there is a bilateral covenant. That's when you and I get together, this gentleman in the front row, we get together and say, hey, this is my property line. Okay, we're going to make a covenant right now. If you step over my property line, I will shoot you. <laughs> you stay on your side, you live. So we shake on it. And then, if he stays on his side, he lives. He comes on my side, to shoot him. He dies. He broke the covenant. We made a covenant not to cross over. He did. He's dead. Now that's exactly what happened at Mount Sinai. When God made the covenant with Moses... We're going to get there in a second. But the first thing you need to understand is Israel is not the church. The second thing is we are not bound to give tithes and offerings as prescribed by the Mosaic law in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Those texts are talking about Jews under the law of Moses who are under the ceremonial sacrificial system. And we are not under that system So we are not bound by that system. 
The third thing is, is we are not under this Deuteronomic covenant, which was the bilateral covenant. It's found in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. I mean, just read it sometime. There's all, if you do this, I will bless you. If you obey, I'll bless you. If you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, curse, 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 curse. He lists all these curses. So they had the option. They could obey God, receive blessing, disobey God, receive cursing. And the people in the text that this was addressed to originally were under the curses of Deuteronomy and Leviticus 26. Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. They were suffering the curse of God. He says that in verse 19. We'll get there in a minute. But we are not under that covenant. Why? Because the Bible says that when Christ died, he became a curse what? For us. And so he took the curse of the law upon himself so that now we can obey the law because the new covenant says, I will write my law in their heart and I will what? Cause them to walk in my way. And so, yeah, we still have to obey the law. We still have, we can't murder, we can't steal, we can't commit adultery, but there's no more curse now. The curse has been taken off, thank goodness. Yeah, it's like, whoo, baby, how Curse gone. Now when we sin, we have forgiveness in Christ. Because Christ died on the cross for our sins. Like, whoo, that's so good. So, we are not under the, the covenant of Deuteronomy, or the Mosaic covenant. Fourth, we must keep in mind that we are not under a, and I hate to throw out these words, but there's, I don't know how else to put them. Um, you know, you have to deal with big words sometimes. You just write these down and wow people with them. A theocracy. We are not under a theocracy or we are not under a theocratic monarchy, for a bigger word, words. What is the, What are those? A theocracy is when God rules his people through an individual or individuals. For instance, Moses was a leader and Aaron was a leader and God spoke to them and they did what God wanted as leaders and led the people in the way of God. So it was a theocracy as God was leading the people through a man who submitted to him. A theocratic monarchy is similar, monarch being king, like David. He was a man after God's own heart. And so he trusted in God. God told him what to do, and that's what he did. So God led the people through a king. And guess what? We are not under a theocracy. We are not under a theocratic monarchy. Our government, for the most part, is pagan. And so all of these things do not match up. We are not Israel. We are not under the Mosaic Covenant. We are not under the blessing and curses of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And our government system is neither a theocracy or a theocratic monarchy like it was here. So you think, well, why even read the passage? Because all scripture is profitable and there's some good things here. But I want to tell you that, so now when we, I'm going to go you know, pull out the sword and slay a holy cow here, um, you won't be going, oh my goodness, how does he do that? Very easily. Let's talk about this tithe thing. A tithe just means one-tenth. One-tenth of what you have. That's what a tithe is, a tenth part. And many churches teach that the New Testament believers must tithe. And maybe some of you have been taught that. Maybe some of you believe that. Well, I have news for you. Now, get this. The Bible does not teach tithing in either the Old Testament or New 
Testament. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, what's the trick here? I know there's a verse in there somewhere. There's one right here. It says, you've robbed me of tithes. The Old Testament teaches that they had to tithe, but the tithe was not the only thing they had to give. They had to give way, way more. Now, let's just run you through a little system of tithes. Now, one of the things that people like to do who want to get people to tithe, now, it's, now tithing's okay. There's nothing wrong with tithing. There's nothing wrong with doing what Zacchaeus did. Remember when he came to the Lord, he was extremely wealthy, he gave 50% of everything he had, and then he said, if I took anything by extortion or fraud, I'll tell you what, I'll give him 400% return. So you can do that. That's okay. What I'm trying to say is, is that the, the New Testament will teach us, and the Old Testament, free will offering. But let's just look at this tithe thing. The first place a tithe appears is in Genesis 14.20. It's a story of Melchizedek. You remember that story? Um, Abraham has the battle, what is it, with the Shertolomer or whatever, who capture um, Lot. And so he rescues Lot, and they plunder the enemies, and he gets all this plunder. Then he comes along and he meets Melchizedek, a king and priest of the Most High God, king of Salem, a shortened form of Jerusalem. And so Abraham gives that king 10%. Now, when you look at the text, he probably didn't give him 10% of everything he had. He probably gave him 10% of what he gained from the spoil. But in the text, God never tells him, Abraham give 10%. He just decided to do that. Now, what we need to realize, because some people say, oh, right here, here's 10%. This is before the law of Moses. Then the law of Moses states 10%, so we must have to give 10%. That's like saying, oh, there's sacrifices before the law of Moses. And in the law of Moses, so we need to give sacrifices too. See, that doesn't work. All the other places that Abraham ever offered up anything or sacrificed anything, do you know what? He never gave 10%. Only in this place. So you can't just take one obscure time when he gave, not under the command of God, and turn that into the rule of all the ages. There's another place where 10% is mentioned, and that's in Genesis 22:28. Remember when Jacob is, is fleeing for his life from his brother who wants to kill him because not only he stole the, the birthright but the blessing? And uh, he's sleeping on the hill, and he sees the vision of the ladder. And as he he's, um, has this vision, he decides that he's going to commit a tenth of everything he has to God. Now, Jacob was at a very, very low spiritual ebb. He was deceiving, he was lying, he was fleeing, anything but godly. And in that culture, a lot of the pagans practice giving a tenth to try and bribe their pagan gods. And most likely, Jacob is just saying, hey, listen, God, I'll give you 10% if you just help me. But even if he gave it out of good motives, God didn't tell him to do that. He didn't tell Abraham to do it, and he didn't tell Jacob to do it. But later, in the book of Leviticus, God does prescribe a tenth. This is in Leviticus 27. 
It's the first mandatory tithe required of the people. And it was a tithe that is a tenth of all you have that was to be given to the Levites to support the Levites. Now, you know, some of you guys are math guys. You can get your pencil on and try and figure this out. This is beyond me. But they had to give a tenth of all they had to support the Levites. Now, don't write this down because this will confuse you. The Levites then had to give a tenth of what they had to support the priests who were serving at that time. But just forget that. Just talk about this tenth. Now, what's interesting is that tenth of all they had that was given to the Levites was to be given after the first fruits. The first fruits was anytime your your cattle had birthed, anytime your your crops came in, you took some off the top and you presented it to the Lord. That's in Deuteronomy 18:4. That was the offering of the first fruits. The problem is, is Deuteronomy 18:4 doesn't prescribe how much that should be. It just says it should be done. Now the Jews said that it was to be at least one sixteenth. So if you take 100% and you take one sixteenth off of that, and then you take one tenth off of that, that's where we're at right now. Then right before entering the promised land, the Lord required an additional tithe to be taken to support special meals and Levitical functions. This is in Deuteronomy 12, 5 and 6, verse 11 and verse 18. So now we have the 100% minus the 16th minimum, maybe more. And then we have the one-tenth and now another one-tenth. Then in addition to that, there was to be another tenth paid, according to Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29, and 26, 12, every third year to support the welfare system. So you either have to average that in or take, you know, 33 and a third percent, um, you know, of whatever that third is every third year, average years together. I don't know how you do it. I'm not a math wizard. My kids, you know, last week I talked about driving seven miles on a dirt road. And I said, and they paved two miles, and then I only had four miles to go on the dirt road. (laughs) And then I got home, and, you know, after church every day, it's beat up my dad. Dad, you had it wrong. (laughs) So, they said, Dad... If you get seven, you take away two. It isn't four, it's five. Okay, so I'm not a math wizard. So in addition to that, in addition to the 16th and the 10th and the 10th and the 10th every third year, in addition to that, in Leviticus 19.9 and 23.22, God said the Israelites had to leave the corners of their fields and harvested for the poor. Remember, that's what happened with Ruth. Remember, she was in Boaz's field and she was gleaning the corners? Well, how, I don't know how much that is. I mean, you know, if you have a tractor, you know, you can cut wide or cut short, but there's some in the corner, depending how generous you want to be. But they had to do that. It was required. In addition to that, in Exodus 23.11, it says that every seven years, the Israelites were required to let their land, what? Lie fallow. So in other words, 100% of their crops would be forfeited every seven years. Figure that in, however you do that. Then in Deuteronomy 15.1 and 31.10, they were required to forgive all debts every seven years. Every seven years, you were to wipe all debts out. 
The reason God did that is to keep the society debt-free and from people from gaining too much power and wealth and oppressing the poor. So everybody knew that if you were going to loan somebody money, it was going to be erased whenever that seventh year was coming. So you were very careful. Of course, the borrowers were really after it, weren't they? It's like, man, if I could just, you know, get this guy to loan me some money, I mean, in another week, man. It'll be free and clear. So that's what God did. So everybody had to forfeit all debts every seven years. In addition to that, after seven sevens of years, after 49 years, on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, anybody who had acquired the land of anybody else that was not theirs in their family and their inheritance had to give it back. So in other words, if you were some guy and your crops failed and you couldn't pay your bills and finally you just had to say, you know, I got to sell my land. I, I, I'm not going to survive. I mean, that was the first thing you did before you became a bond slave to somebody. And you said, okay, uh, you can have my land. So somebody buys your land or buys part of your land and now it's their land. They're doing what, what they want with it. But God wanted all the allotments to stay within the tribal inheritances. So at the 50th year... It all reverted back, free and clear. Now, I'm no mathematician, but I can tell you this. That is way more than 23%. All of that was required. That is not a tie. That's a, you know, a 40-something. That is not a tithe. So the Old Testament does not teach that they needed to just give a tithe. It was way, way more than that, kind of like our tax system. You know, you think of, of this right here, and you think of our tax system. There's some parallels here, isn't there? You know, we have this voluntary tax system, and if you don't pay, they throw you in jail. This was an involuntary system, and if you didn't give, you were cursed. Very similar. So we know for certain that even Israel was not required to just give a tenth. They were required to give, you know, the sixteenth and the tenth and a tenth of that, well, that and a tenth every third year and then all those other things which all related to different proportions depending on the circumstances and the heart of the giver. But they were all required and it was a lot more than just ten percent. So it doesn't mean you can't tithe. I'm just trying to blow away the myth of tithing. The Bible doesn't teach that as the thing to do. Now, back from the rabbit trail. We've gone off. Let's look at verse 8. He says, How will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, How have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You see, what you need to realize is that when you refuse to give like God's word prescribed. And mind you, we haven't got there yet, and we won't get there for a while. But the Bible does say we need to give to the governing authorities, Romans 13, to support, submit to them. And the Bible does say we are to give to the church, for instance, you know, 2 Corinthians 9. We have to do that. Now, just because there isn't a percentage, we still have to do that. We're still under obligation. And even though you won't be cursed with a curse, you can still forfeit blessing. You can still be disciplined if you don't do what's right. And we'll see that more in a little bit. So we need to understand the principle that any Christian who does not 
regularly give to support the work of the Lord is robbing from God. Now you say, again, how? Well, let me tell you. When people are selfish, when they're greedy, when they want to hold on to, quote, their things, which we learned last week, are really whose? They're God's. And they don't give God what he deserves, then God's church suffers and God's ministries suffer. And then the church suffers. You consider Mormonism. You go out into little podunk towns in Idaho and you find these huge Mormon structure. A giant Mormon structure. And it's all paid for. And you're thinking, how did that happen? I'll tell you how. They force people to tithe. Let me see your W-2. And so, what do you think an unbeliever sees when he drives by the Mormon ward? God is really blessing them. And then they drive down the street and they see that Protestant church with the chipped up paint falling apart that is a converted school building from 1929. And they're going, well, obviously God is not blessing that church, but he's blessing this one. And God doesn't get the glory that he should get. You see, the church, like the nation of Israel, was to hold the word of God up and be a witness to the world of the glory and blessing of God. And God just says, I'm telling you, just do this. And when we get to the next part, when he says, just test me in this so I can show you, I just want you to test me. I command you to test me. I want to bless you. But so often, people are stingy. When they're stingy, the ministries hurt. The church flounders like Israel was floundering in the land, and God is not glorified. This is what Thomas Watson wrote, somebody you're probably familiar with now. Thomas Watson, the godly man's picture, said, quote, The Jews did not spare any cost in their idolatrous worship. No, they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch. They were so zealous in their idol worship that they would sacrifice their sons and daughters to their false gods. How far the blind heathen went in their false zeal. When the tribunes of Rome complained that they wanted gold in their treasuries to offer to Apollo, the Roman matrons plucked off their chains of gold and rings and bracelets and gave them to the priests to offer sacrifices. Were these so zealous in their sinful worship, and will you not be zealous in the worship of a true God? End quote. We have eternity. They have nothing. You go and look at the liberal churches, big churches, dead churches. You look at these cults, thriving, big, I mean, just go down by Sunset Boulevard and see the L. Ron Hubbard monstrosity. And then you see all the churches that are preaching the word, struggling by, because the saints have a grip on what they should be giving to God. Now, I hate to leave you with a curse like the end of the Old Testament, like the book of Malachi. But next week, we'll come back and find out how you can receive a blessing from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Malachi. We thank you for this great text. 
And Father, there's so much here. It's so good. Father, we thank you that we aren't under the curses of Deuteronomy. We thank you that you don't curse us when, when we don't give like we should. No, Father, we want to have hearts that are right. We want to have hearts that give like you want us to give. We want to enjoy all your blessings and give you thanks for them. We want to acknowledge that everything we have is from you and you give us the power to make wealth. You give us life and give us everything we have. Father, may we learn the one lesson from this text. That when we don't submit to you and give regularly, like your word says, and we haven't found out how that is yet, we're robbing from you. We're stealing from your glory. Father, help us not to do that. Help us to leave here changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.